good afternoon. I would like to call to order this hearing of the United States Senate Committee on Foreign Relations. I hope everyone's staying healthy and safe during these unprecedented times. The coronavirus has impacted people across our country in many ways. Americans have lost their lives or become seriously ill. Healthcare workers and essential employees are working diligently around the clock. Businesses and schools are closed. We are learning how to adapt to the ever-evolving situation, including in Congress. So as a way to ensure the Senate can continue to do our work, we're conducting the first remote hearing in this committee. Uh, due to the current coronavirus pandemic, the hearing today is a little different from the traditional format, but I, I know we can all rise to the challenge. Our committee is meeting today to examine the nominations of five individuals to serve as their nation's interests across the globe. These nominees are joining us from all over the country. Uh, I want to welcome all of you and congratulate you on your nomination uh, to these important positions. I'd also like to extend a warm welcome to your friends and your family who are watching from home. Should you serve our nation in these important positions, it is critical that each of you provide strong stewardship of American taxpayer resources, demonstrate professionalism and good judgment, and vigorously work to advance the priorities of the United States. During your testimony, I hope that each of you will lay out your vision and goals for the position which which you have been nominated and how you plan to achieve them. I would now like to take a moment to introduce our nominees to the committee. Natalie Brown is a nominee to the U.S. Amphibian Ambassador to Uganda. She is a career member of the Senior Foreign Service class of Counselor. Ms. Brown is currently the Chief of Mission at the United States Embassy in Eritrea, in East Africa. She previously held the positions of Deputy Permanent Representative and Deputy Chief of Missions of the U.S. Mission to the United Nations Agencies in Rome. During her career, she has also served overseas as U.S. Embassies in Tunisia, Jordan, Kuwait, Ethiopia, and uh, Guinea. Ramsey Day is a nominee to be the USAID's Assistant Administrator for the African Bureau. Mr. Day is currently the Assistant to the Administrator for the Bureau of Policy Planning and Learning. He previously worked as Senior Director at the International Republican Institute, IRI, and the IRI uh, County Director in Jordan. Throughout his career, Mr. Day has held numerous positions within the international development and foreign policy communities in the United States, as well as overseas. Sandra Clark is the nominee to be the U.S. Ambassador to Burkina Faso. She is a career member of the Senior Foreign Service, class of Minister Counselor. Since 2017, Ms. Clark has been the, Deputy, the Director of the Office of West African Affairs in the State Department's Bureau of African Affairs. She has also held the position of the Deputy Chief of Mission for the U.S. Embassy in Senegal. During her career, Ms. Clark also served overseas at U.S. embassies in the United Kingdom, Georgia, France, and Nigeria. William Grayson has been nominated to be U.S. Ambassador to Estonia. He's currently serving as the National Director of the Family Offices of the Bernstein Private Wealth Management in San Francisco, California. With over two, years of, two decades of experience, he has valuable knowledge in investment, marketing, and management positions in large global investment firms. Mr. Grayson's public service included appointments under four presidents. President George Herbert Walker Bush appointed him to be Principal Deputy General Counsel of the Army, where he oversaw the Army's 2,700 lawyers. He is the recipient of the Outstanding Civilian Service Award from the Secretary of the Army. And Henry Wooster is the nominee to be the U.S. Ambassador to Jordan. He is a career member of the Senior Foreign Service class of Minister Counselor. Mr. Wooster is currently the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State 
for the Maghreb and for Egypt in the Bureau of Northeastern Affairs. He's previously worked as the Deputy Chief of Mission and then Chargé d'Affaires at the U.S. Embassy in Jordan. Mr. Wissler has also served as Deputy Chief of Mission in the U.S. Embassy in France. Uh, this is clearly an impressive group of nominees, and I'd like to now turn uh, over to, uh, the meeting to Ranking Member Booker for his opening comments. Yeah, Mr. Chairman, can you hear me? I can hear you very well. Thank you. Great. I'm just going to submit uh, my remarks to the record uh, with the exception of just saying two things. One is uh, I'm just uh, really gra grateful that you're assuming the uh, chairmanship of the subcommittee uh, after Senator Isaacson's retirement. We're definitely going to miss him, but I look forward uh, really to working with you. And obviously, we have uh, severe crises when it comes to COVID. Um, the World Health Organization is, is talking about uh, potentially catastrophic impact. And we're already seeing uh, significant infection. So I'm looking forward to the work we have before us and to working with uh, many of the nominees. I'm looking forward to the questions, but I'll, I'll submit my uh, formal uh, uh, remarks for the record. I've delayed the uh, meeting long enough with the technical difficulties. Well, thank you so much, uh, Senator Booker. And this is our first hearing together as subcommittee leadership. And I do look very much forward to many more opportunities for the two of us to work together in the year ahead. Uh, now, all of the positions that the committee is discussing today are very important. We look forward to hearing the testimony from each of the five of you. Um, and I, uh, the, uh, I let you know that your full statements will be entered into the record in its entirety. So I ask that you summarize your testimony in about five minutes in order for members to have an opportunity to ask questions. Uh, the order that we'll go in, we'll start with Ms. Brown first, and then Mr. Day, then Ms. Clark, then Mr. Grayson, and then Mr. Uh, Worcester will be our final one to testify, and then we'll go to questions. So with that, Ms. Brown, uh, welcome you and congratulate you and uh, ask you to, uh, to start. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Chairman, ranking member and members of the committee, I'm honored to, be, to appear before you today as the president's nominee to be the next United States ambassador to the Republic of Uganda. I appreciate Uganda. I appreciate the confidence and trust the president and secretary have placed in me by submitting my name for consideration. And I welcome the opportunity to speak with you today in this innovative format. If confirmed, I pledge to work with you directly or virtually to advance our nation's interest in Uganda. Mr. Chairman, with your permission, I would like to acknowledge family members cheering me on from afar. As without their support, encouragement and sacrifices, I would not be with you today. My mother, Betty Brown's love of geography and interest in global events made me curious about the world. And I thank my sister, Daryl Glenn Brown, who is both my staunchest supporter and my toughest critic for always challenging me to do better. And with me today in spirit are my father, Eugene, whose 27 years as a police officer inspired my career in foreign service and public service. My dear friend, Faye Hall, whom I met on my first diplomatic assignment and who provided a home away from home over the years and my fiance, Fikret Yildiz, who passed away recently, most likely a victim of the pandemic that has claimed far too many lives globally and who is looking forward to joining the, for the State Department family. Mr. Chairman, Senators, in eight countries across Africa and the Middle East, as well as in Washington, I've had the great privilege of representing the United States and advancing American interests. From assisting American citizens in need to helping identify business opportunities for American companies. I supported Kuwaiti women in their first effort to run for elected office and vote 
and time spent at the Marine Corps Command and Staff College was a chance to learn more about my colleagues in uniform and their roles in protecting American interests. Coupled with this substantive background is experience in directing U.S. foreign policy and mentoring the next generation of American diplomats. Most recently, I served as Chief of Mission in Asmara Eritrea, where my team worked to revitalize long-strained relations amid profound political and security change in the Horn of Africa. In Rome, as the deputy in our mission to the UN food agencies, we coordinated across the US government to build consensus with international partners in alleviating hunger and ensuring the responsible contributions, the responsible use of contributions to the UN system. I was also deputy chief of mission in Tunisia and a high point of my career remains the substantial support from the United States to that country and its people as they transitioned from dictatorship to democracy. I believe these experiences have prepared me well to guide and support our country team in Uganda and its work on some of the world's most challenging issues. Mr. Chairman, over the past 25 years, the United States and Uganda have cooperated to counter terrorism and promote stability, particularly in Somalia, to encourage economic growth and prosperity, evidenced by increasing private U.S. investment in the investment country, and to curb the spread of pandemics such as COVID-19. Here, Uganda's experience in combating HIV-AIDS, Ebola, and other infectious diseases, bolstered by significant long-term technical and material support from the United States, is helping to set an example. We have made notable progress, and if confirmed, my team and I will work hard to continue and hopefully accelerate this trend. Regrettably, there are areas tilting the opposite direction. Strengthening Uganda's multi-party democracy, promoting good, governments, good governance, combating official corruption, and reinforcing respect for human rights, including for marginalized populations, are key U.S. policy priorities, and if confirmed, areas on which I intend to focus. Uganda will hold elections in early 2021, and President Museveni is expected to seek a, a sixth term. If confirmed, I will encourage him to ensure the political space required for an open and vibrant process with free and full participation. Given Uganda's influence in the region, this is important not only for the future of the country and its people, but also for its neighbors. Mr. Chairman, key to much of Uganda's progress in combating terrorism, combating terrorism, combating terrorism, growing the economy, and taking care of its people are the significant investments by the United States in security, agriculture, and education. The majority of our special focus on achieving HIV epidemic control and fighting malaria as a healthier population is essential to Uganda's continued development. If confirmed, I'll work with Uganda to maintain momentum on its achievements in health and to prepare for the day when it assumes full responsibility for the programs now funded by the United States. On the critical issue of economic growth, with 80% of Uganda's population under the age of 30, in order to compete in the global marketplace, it is vital that Uganda encourage and promote job creation technological advances and foreign investment. investment. Harnessing the potential of this tremendous youth bulge as a force for economic ingenuity and prosperity will also serve as a counter-narrative to violent extremism and despair. Drive to expand trade and commercial ties between the United States and Uganda for the advancement of both of our nations. Thank you, and I look forward to your questions. Well, thank you so very much for your testimony. We welcome your mom who was there. We appreciate your father who was with us in spirit in his years of service to the uh, law enforcement. And we're very sorry to hear about the loss of your fiance. So we are, 
we're, we're grateful for your service and your testimony, and we're going to return in a few moments with, with questions. But thank you so much for, for being here and for your testimony, and congratulations on today. And now I'd like to turn to uh, Mr. Day. Thank you. Mr. Chairman, ranking member, members of the committee, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be here today as President Trump's nominee to be Assistant Administrator for the Bureau for Africa at the U.S. Agency for International Development. I'd also like to thank President Trump, Secretary Pompeo, former Administrator Green, and Acting Administrator Barca for their support and for the confidence they placed in me to serve in this role. I'd like to take this opportunity to also thank Acting Assistant Administrator Chris Maloney, who's led the Africa Bureau since January of this year. I also want to recognize my remarkably talented and dedicated colleagues at USAID, and particularly those in the Africa Bureau, both here in Washington and overseas. And of course, a, a special thank you to my wonderful wife, Charlotte, uh, to say that I married up would be quite an understatement, uh, and I'm immensely grateful for her love and support. Uh, lastly, I'd also like to thank my, my mother, Janie, uh, who, along with my late father, Woody, uh, instilled in me the values, principles, and faith that, that guide me every day. Mr. Chairman, my love of Africa began nearly 20 years ago when I landed in Johannesburg, South Africa, as a backpacker as part of a year-long journey around the world. I spent several months exploring the continent. I was completely captured by the natural beauty of the landscapes, the richness and diversity of the cultures, and of course, the awe-inspiring wildlife. But most importantly, I fell in love with the people, particularly the many young Africans whom I learned from, laughed with, and shared countless stories. It was this experience in Africa, as well as living in New York City on September 11th, that helped shape a vision for a career I never dreamed of as a kid growing up in Mississippi. Africa has truly changed the path of my life and career. Over the past 15 years, I've been fortunate to serve at USAID multiple times and in multiple administrations, both in Washington and overseas. I've also worked for a USAID implementing partner at the International Republican Institute in Jordan, where I led programs advancing the democratic principles of citizen responsive government. For the last two years, serving in the Africa Bureau and more recently in the Bureau for Policy Planning and Learning at USAID, I've seen that Africa is a continent both of immense opportunities and acute challenges. The continent's rapidly expanding demographics means Africa's labor force will soon be bigger than China, bigger than India. And if Africa becomes more integrated into the international economic system, millions of people could be lifted out of poverty. And the US would have expanded market opportunities on a continent with ever increasing spending power. But Africa is also faced with chronic corruption, poor governance and food insecurity, as well as devastating natural disasters and crushing man-made conflicts that have displaced millions. And the American people have been and will continue to be there to support our African partners. USAID, on behalf of the American people, is by far the world's largest health and humanitarian assistance donor responding to these challenges. Programs like the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, PEPFAR, and the President's Malaria Initiative have literally saved millions of lives. But over 70% of the African population is under the age of 35. Without opportunities for meaningful work, this young population is vulnerable to recruitment from extremist organizations or other destabilizing influences. American engagement has been and will continue to be critical. Never is this more evident than today. As the COVID-19 pandemic continues to sweep across the globe, health systems in developing countries, particularly in Africa, need to be strengthened to adequately respond to the crisis. As we've seen in recent months, this virus can spread quickly. We've also learned that what happens overseas can have an immediate and profound impact on our homeland and our way of life. USAID has been at the front lines in the fight against Ebola, HIV and AIDS, tuberculosis, malaria, and we're also spearheading the global response to COVID-19 as we continue to battle it here at home. 
If I'm confirmed, I intend to work tirelessly on this and other issues critical to our national strategic and security interests. And if confirmed, my, my priorities would be clear. First, as always, and without compromise, will be the health and safety of every USAID staff member and their family. My second priority will be to maintain the highest level of financial integrity. Leaders at USAID are the stewards of hard-earned and precious taxpayer resources. Congress and the American people have entrusted us to ensure those resources are deployed in the most efficient and effective way possible to advance American interests around the world. And lastly, I'll concentrate my efforts on ensuring every USAID program is focused on advancing U.S. foreign policy objectives through USAID's Journey to Self-Reliance organizing principles. Mr. Chairman, if I'm confirmed, it would be a tremendous honor to serve and lead the nearly 3,000 civil service, foreign service, foreign service nationals, and personal services contractors that make up the USAID family. And I commit to you that I'll work closely and transparently with members of Congress and staff to integrate your perspectives, experiences, and priorities into our approaches to develop the development challenges faced by our African partners. Your viewpoints are, are absolutely crucial to the work that we do on the ground and are greatly appreciated. Thank you, and I look forward to your questions. Well, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Day, and congratulations again on your nomination. We look forward to getting to questions in a few moments. I'd like to now turn to uh, Ms. Clark, nominee to be Ambassador to Burkina Faso. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, and distinguished members of the committee, I am deeply honored to appear as the nominee to serve as the U.S. Ambassador to Burkina Faso. I am grateful to the President and the Secretary of State for the confidence they have shown in nominating me for this position. I would like to recognize my husband, Alan Tollerton, and thank him for his unfailing love, and my wonderful and intrepid daughter, Emma. I'm also grateful to my brothers, Gregory and David, and my sister-in-law, Lisa, for their support. And I am thankful for the gifts that we received from our late parents our mother who emigrated to the United States after the Second World War, and our father whose family has long and deep roots in New England. And I would like to thank my family, friends, and colleagues who have joined us virtually today. If confirmed as ambassador, I will marshal my 34 years of experience as a foreign service officer to promote and protect U.S. interests in Burkina Faso. I would look forward to working closely with members of this committee and your staffs in that endeavor. Burkina Faso is at the nexus of U.S. strategic interests in the Sahel and West Africa. This country, with its proud tradition of peaceful coexistence among its diverse communities, remains the bulwark against racism spreading to its neighbors. If confirmed, I will spearhead our efforts with our Burkinabe partners and international allies on the interlinked objectives of advancing regional security promoting democracy, good governance, and human rights, and encouraging economic opportunity and development. Burkina Faso and our bilateral partnership cannot flourish if it is plagued by violence. Armed attacks have driven over three quarters of a million people from their homes. The security and law enforcement services face a daunting challenge and require support to enable them to counter this threat while protecting the population. Confirmed, I will continue our work to develop more capable and professional military and law enforcement services to respect human rights. Burkina Faso is working with other nations, such as the G5 Sahel members, to solve regional problems. And the United States has like minded partners there. The Secretary for 
approved a diplomatic engagement framework for the Sahel and appointed a U.S. Special Envoy to maximize our collective impact. And if confirmed, I will work closely with the Special Envoy to coordinate and leverage these immense efforts. Burkina Faso is a young democracy. President Kabori is the first democratically elected president after the 27-year rule of his predecessor. Burkinabe continued to respect and criticize and shape their, shape their democracy. Peaceful elections later this year that accurately reflect the will of the people will be crucial to solidifying that democracy. Burkina Faso's judicial system has struggled to bring terrorists and human rights violators to justice. And if confirmed, I will build on our relationships government and with the country's vibrant media and society organizations to strengthen democratic institutions that, and practices and advocate for human rights. Burkinabe are dynamic, creative, and seek a better economic future. The United States is partnering with them through such agencies as the U.S. Agency for International Development and the Millennium Challenge Corporation, which is working to finalize a second compact with Burkina Faso this year. These programs, coupled with U.S. diplomacy and the ingenuity of the U.S. private sector, should help promote economic growth and create jobs for both our countries, especially for the burgeoning youth population. The United States has provided humanitarian and other assistance to the people of Burkina Faso over the years, including to establish a National Public Health Emergency Operations Center is playing a pivotal role during this COVID-19 pandemic. Indeed, the epidemiologist leading Burkina Faso's COVID-19 response is the Centers for Disease Control fellow who just returned to this country. I am proud of the role the United States has played in helping the Burkinabe respond to the pandemic and of the embassy's success in assisting more than 150 Americans return home. It would indeed be an honor and a privilege firm to lead our talented and committed embassy staff at this critical juncture in Burkina Faso. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, and members of the committee, I thank you for this opportunity to appear before you, and I look forward to your questions. Well, again, thank you. Congratulations. Uh, we look forward to having a chance to ask you questions. Uh, there's a woman from my home state of Wyoming who has previously been ambassador to Burkina Faso. Uh, so I'm familiar with the challenges that you'll be facing. And I also have a wonderful and intrepid daughter who is also named Emma. So oh, uh, hopefully we can get them together at some point yes, in the future. Great. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Well, congratulations again. Now we'd like to hear uh, from uh, Mr. Grayson, the nominee to be the ambassador to Estonia. Mr. Grayson, the floor is yours. Great. Great. Thank you very much, uh, Chairman Brasso, Ranking Member Booker, and distinguished members of the committee. I'm honored to appear before you today in this virtual hearing during this unprecedented time and pandemic as the President's nominee to be the United States Ambassador to the Republic of Estonia. I'm deeply grateful to President Trump and Secretary Pompeo for the trust and confidence that they have placed in me. If confirmed, I look forward to working very closely with the committee, your staffs, and other members of Congress to build upon the robust partnership that exists between the United States and Estonia. My top priority will be the welfare, security, and health of the U.S. citizens in Estonia and our exceptional embassy team in Tallinn. Also work to strengthen our joint security, our cooperation with NATO, 
further bilateral trade and economic opportunities, and of course, counter malign influence in the region. Mr. Chairman, with your permission, I'd like to introduce my family members. First, my wife, and they're going to appear if that's okay, Mr. Chairman. <laughs> First, my wife, Lori Grayson, who if I'm confirmed will be an outstanding representative Hi, of the United States in Estonia. I'm Hi, also proud to introduce our three daughters. Two of them are here with us in San Francisco, uh, Elizabeth and Caroline. And I also want to introduce our daughter, Catherine, who's in DC working for, uh, working on uh, Capitol Hill. And that's a picture of Catherine, in case you see her running around the hill. Um, I, I also want to take uh, a minute to recognize my great sister, Darby, and our parents, E.C. and Jean Grayson, who continue to be outstanding role models to us. My dad served as the Assistant Secretary of the Navy in the Reagan administration and is a decorated Korean War veteran. He and my mom instilled in us our deep love of family, country, and travels around the world. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Thank you, Senator. Uh, throughout my private and public sector career, I've been honored to serve in four administrations, as you noted. First is the Principal Deputy General Counsel of the Army under George H.W. Bush, then on the President's Commission on White House Fellowships under President George W. Bush, then as a re regional White House Fellows Judge under President Barack Obama, and currently, thanks to President Trump, I'm the chairman of the Presidio Trust in San Francisco, where I have the privilege of overseeing one of the national park's crown jewels. I'm now honored again, of course, to be the president's nominee to be the ambassador to Estonia. Mr. Chairman, the United States and Estonia have been close friends for over 100 years. A strong NATO ally since 2004, Estonia has shown an unwavering commitment to our shared global security. Estonian troops serve with us in Iraq and contribute to NATO's resolute support mission in Afghanistan. Estonia has committed 2% of its GDP to defense spending for eight years and serves as a role model to other NATO allies. If confirmed, I will continue to work hard to deepen our defense relationship with Estonia. Also, this October, Estonia will host the Three Seas Initiative, which is a Central European-led effort to accelerate cross-border commerce through important infrastructure projects in transportation, cyber, and digital. It would also provide an alternative to malign investments from the PRC and other nations that are not aligned with the region or the United States. This year, we also marked the 80th anniversary of the 1940 Wells Declaration under which the United States refused to recognize the forced annexation of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania into the Soviet Union. Estonia showed great courage in overcoming Soviet occupation and has since become a shining example of innovation to the world. The democratic values that the U.S.-Estonia share continue to be the bedrock of our bilateral regional global partnership. E-Estonia, as it's often called, is one of the most digitally advanced countries in the world. If confirmed, I'll use my experience working with talented tech or AI company founders and innovators in San Francisco, Silicon Valley, and across the country to expand trade, research, and investment opportunities. Estonia hosts the NATO-accredited 
Cooperative Cyber Defense Center of Excellence in Tallinn, which the United States joined in 2011. Last year, Estonia joined us in signing a 27-country agreement advancing responsible state behavior in cyberspace. Further, our recent joint declaration on 5G security is further evidence of our cyber cooperation, which, if confirmed, I look forward to continuing and expanding. The United States and Estonia are strong partners guided by a century of diplomatic relations and friendships. Given the many global threats and opportunities that exist today, our relationship is as important now as it's ever been. If confirmed, I will be a champion for the United States and its interests in Estonia, while strengthening the bilateral economic, defense, and democratic ties that bind us. Mr. Chairman, I greatly appreciate the honor bestowed upon me by this nomination, and if confirmed, I will do my best to uphold the trust that you, your fellow members, President Trump, Secretary Pompeo, and the American people are placing in me. Well, thank, thank you again for this opportunity to appear, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Mr. Grayson. We congratulate you. Thank you for including your family. I know Senator Alexander, Lamar Alexander, emailed me last night, and he was hoping so much to be able to introduce you in person in the committee. We didn't want to delay <laughs> your hearing, though, <laughs> until a time when that might be possible. I know you wanted to be here with your family, but uh, congratulations again. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. To, uh, our final nominee, uh, Mr. Wooster, who is the nominee to uh, Jordan. Please proceed. Thank you, Senator. Chairman, ranking member, distinguished members of the committee, it's a privilege and an honor to appear before you today, albeit virtually, as the president's nominee to serve as the U.S. ambassador for the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. I'm grateful to President Trump and Secretary Pompeo for their confidence in me. Gratitude is also due to my wife, Laura Dahlman, and our four children, Cameron, Claire, Kimberly, and Kristen, who have shared the public service journey worldwide. Their love, when we were together and when unaccompanied, have sustained me. I joined the Foreign Service 20 years ago, following nine years in the civil service, five of which were overseas. Before that, service in the U.S. Army and the Army Reserve. I've served in eight U.S. embassies, as diverse as Paris and Baghdad as well as in numerous Washington positions. I've advocated for U.S. interests across the globe and worked with allies in the international community to pursue joint goals. At present, I'm the Deputy Assistant Secretary for the Maghreb and Egypt. As Secretary Pompeo said last year, Jordan is one of the United States' enduring strategic partners. And from my own past service there, I know this to be true. American-Jordanian friendship advances U.S. interests as does Jordan's path of modernization and its example of moderation. Over the last decade, Jordan has suffered a series of external shocks, the Syrian civil war, the fight against ISIS, and now, of course, COVID-19. All of these have battered its people and its economy. The U.S. priority is to help the kingdom's economic recovery, economic, excuse me, economy recover in a way that ensures stability. Jordan's 2020 budget contains concrete, meaningful reforms, and the government's decisive response to the COVID crisis should enable it to begin reopening its economy very soon. If confirmed, I pledge to work with you, with all the tools the U.S. government has, with international organizations like the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, and with the international community. 
to help Jordan create a stable and growing economy. Our partnership with Jordan has long included military collaboration. Jordan has been an invaluable ally in our joint work to counter terrorism, support international peacekeeping, and provide humanitarian assistance throughout the region. Jordan is the third largest recipient of U.S. foreign military financing, with our support focusing on the Jordanian Armed Forces' five-year plan for modernization, readiness, and enhanced interoperability among its own forces, with our forces, and with NATO forces. Our military assistance reinforces Jordan's role in the region as a bastion of stability. Beyond Jordan's value to the United States as a strategic partner, the kingdom has proven a generous neighbor. Not only does Jordan promote peace in the region, but throughout its history, it has welcomed refugees from neighboring countries, including hundreds of thousands of Syrians. I am proud the United States has contributed nearly $1.5 billion of humanitarian aid to refugees and host communities in Jordan since the Syria crisis began. If confirmed, I will continue to advocate for assistance in international fora to promote burden sharing and ensure we collectively provide for those in need. If confirmed as the next U.S. ambassador to the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, I will continue to strengthen our partnership with the government of Jordan and the Jordanian people. To reflect the face and values of the United States, I will recruit, hire, and maintain a diverse embassy team. I will prioritize the safety of over 23,000 U.S. citizens residing in Jordan and the over 100,000 American tourists who visit annually. To protect and advance U.S. interests, I will proudly lead the nearly 1,000 American and local staff at our embassy, and I will have a special duty to ensure the security of the embassy's 500 American family members. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, and distinguished members of the committee, if confirmed, I will do my utmost to honorably represent the United States of America to the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. To do this and ensure the most informed and effective policy I look forward to continuing my engagement with you and other members of Congress. I thank you for the opportunity to appear before you today, and I look forward to your questions. Well, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Congratulations again, and we look forward to the questioning in a few moments. We've had not a total of nine senators on uh, this to hear your testimony and that of the other uh, nominees, uh, and uh, some of them may not be able to stay through all the questioning. We'll have five-minute rounds, and I'll begin and then turn to Senator Booker, but in addition, Senator Gardner from Colorado and Senator Young from Indiana, Senator Romney from Utah are on, as well as Senator Shaheen from New Hampshire, Senator Murphy from Connecticut, Senator Kane from Virginia, and Senator Coons from Delaware. So there's a lot of interest in this hearing and in the nominations of, of all of you. What I'd like to do is, is start with my questions, uh, and specifically uh, with Mr. Ramsey Day, and I'm going to focus uh, right now on, uh, on Mr. Day and a couple of issues relating to energy development in Africa. Uh, because worldwide, 840 million people are living without electricity. 573 million of them live in sub-Saharan Africa. And I think about what uh, the, the challenges that you're going to be facing, uh, Mr. Day, because energy development can help lift people out of poverty and improve their education, their health, their well-being. And uh, developing countries desperately need access to a steady supply of affordable, reliable electricity uh, to support their economic growth. Um, 
Um, could you tell me about your commitment to helping countries use all energy resources in order to promote economic development and reduce poverty in Africa? Thank you, Senator, and, and thank you for your, your leadership on this issue. It's, it's an absolutely critical issue uh, on the African continent. Uh, USAID has been a, a leader uh, in this field um, with the, uh, the launch of the Power Africa initiative several years ago. Uh, the Trump administration has doubled down on Power Africa. We call it Power Africa 2.0. Um, and the, the initiative has been uh, extremely successful. There's been over 120 transactions that have been supported by, uh, by Power Africa, and they've connected 13 million homes and over 60 million people now have electricity that, that didn't have it prior to the initiative. We're also advancing overall two-way trade between the U.S. and Africa through, a, through the Trump administration's Prosper Africa initiative, which is kind of an all-encompassing um, and, and multi-sectoral uh, initiative. Um, but um, this is one of the key elements of our approach towards development is to engage the private sector so that there are benefits both to African development but also to U.S. Uh, US businesses. So we are absolutely committed to the Power Africa uh, initiative. Um, and it has been successful, and we're going to continue to support it. Well, uh, thank you. I'd I would like to add for all of the members here that uh, the Senator James Risch from Idaho, who is the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, has joined me in my office because he wanted to look at the behind-the-scenes shape of how we're working this and with the staff here doing all of that as well as the questioning and seeing how it would look from sitting there from the position of chairing the subcommittee. So, Senator Risch, we welcome you as part of this, part of this discussion. And, and and uh, subcommittee hearing. I'd like to turn uh, now, to Mr. Day, to the question of coronavirus in Africa. Uh, for more than 50 years, USAID's global health programs have been focused on saving lives, protecting vulnerable populations from disease, promoting stability in, in nations around the world, and specifically uh, also with Africa, because the United States has worked extensively with African nations to strengthen public health systems in order to fight HIV, AIDS, malaria, tuberculosis, Ebola, other infectious diseases. The world is now facing a global pandemic due to coronavirus. So the, the disease could be, my concern, particularly devastating to Africa because of the fragile health system, the limited resources, um, some of the existing insecurity from civil conflict. You know, as ambassador in this position, what, what could be your, what would be your plan for managing and coordinating the, the COVID-19 resources for Africa. Yeah, yeah thank you, Senator. Um, you're, you're absolutely right. The, the U.S. through USAID has been a leader uh, in global health and humanitarian assistance. Um, in fact, if you add up to the donors two, three, and four, they still don't add up to the, <laughs> the commitment of the American taxpayer to supporting global health and humanitarian assistance around the world. And COVID-19 is, is no different in that respect. Um, I think what's interesting about COVID-19 in Africa is that I think the impacts are going to be multidimensional in that there will certainly be a health crisis. Uh, that's obvious, but it's unclear to us exactly um, what that impact is going to look like. Um, there are, right now, there are about 65,000 confirmed cases across the African continent. We have to assume uh, that there are significantly more uh, cases than that. Um, and so it's yet to really unfold what the health crisis looks like on the African continent. However, we certainly know that there's going to be economic distress, if not economic devastation. Um, so the second and third order impacts of COVID-19 are something that we're watching very, very closely. We've already committed uh, significant resources, about $200 million or so, uh, towards supporting COVID-19 response um, in the on the African continent. 
But what we all still ultimately have to do is prioritize our system. So we always are going to look at uh, look at it from a needs perspective, um, and then we'll root it in the president's national security strategy. And then we have to look at where can we make the biggest impact, who's going to be most vulnerable, um, where can we save the most lives, which governments are going to be most committed. And so we'll have to go through a prioritization process, which our USAID COVID-19 task force is currently doing now. Um, but we're absolutely committed to supporting our our African partners on this. And, and if I'm confirmed, I certainly look forward to working with, with members of Congress um, and our African partners, um, because I, I, if I am confirmed, this will certainly be uh, the top programmatic priority for the foreseeable future for USAID. And then, as you mentioned, the, the, the largest contributor would be the United States compared to, I think you said, more than two, three, and four combined. So as you would expect this committee to also be wanting to make sure we had a, a adequate accountability and oversight uh, of the funds. I'm going to ask a, a, a last question. It has to be the way targeted China has been targeting investments in African countries in order to expand their own political, economic, strategic goals. I mean, every time I am in Africa, I see direct evidence of what China is doing. I hear it when I talk to leaders there. Uh, almost you could call it debt diplomacy, where they put countries into debt and then want back from them of resources, concessions, equity in strategic important uh, assets. Could, could you address that? And then and I want to turn to Senator Booker. Sure, of course. Thank you, Senator. This is this is an incredibly uh, complex and important issue that we're dealing with on the African continent. Um, if you look at the U.S. model versus the Chinese model, it is two completely different models. Ours is based on locally led solutions, enterprise develop, enterprise driven development based on transparency and accountability and really focused on citizen responsive government. Uh, the Chinese model is the complete opposite of that. Um, it's opaque um, and in many cases it rewards corruption um, and it drives uh, African countries into uh, unsustainable indebtedness. And in many cases we've seen where uh, sovereign assets have been used to collateralize many of these loans. Um, so un unfortunately, I also think that all too often African countries, they look to the US for a lot of uh, the social programs, um, but then they go and do business with, Af with China. With China. Um, and I think that's where we really have to look at the balance. The, the, our, our values and our principles are certainly going to dictate that we're gonna continue to support our African partners from a social program perspective, all the global health programs that we have, all of the humanitarian assistance, the development programs. But at the same time, I think there needs to be a, a balance because they're looking to China to do business, but they're looking to the US for these social programs. So this will be something that I think we're gonna have to watch very closely, but we have to be very clear in terms of how we articulate our model versus the Chinese model and also other malign influences as well that are continuing to emerge on the continent. Well, I appreciate your focus on this and your keen uh, observations about what's happening there. So thank you. Uh, Senator Booker. All right, uh, Mr. Chairman, can you hear me? Uh, yes, very well, thank you. Thank you. Um, I'd like to direct my first question uh, to Ms. Clark. Uh, in Burkina Faso, there are 11 ventilators right now for roughly 20 million people. And the country is among the hardest hit by the coronavirus uh, on the entire continent. Meanwhile, there's a surging conflict we see that's targeting the government and the hundreds of thousands who have fled the violence and squeezing together uh, in very difficult conditions, um, although they're supposed to be sheltering apart. Uh, I was there in Burkina Faso with some other senators uh, in early 2018, and we met with uh, President uh, Kabori and, 
and commit were he was committed to the growing uh, really uh, Burkina's democracy. We left excited about the hope and the promise uh, within that nascent democracy, and we're really uh, grateful that they were eager to continue the partnership with the United States. And I guess my first question is: is what are the implications now? Uh, understanding some of the fragility within Burkina Faso, uh, what are the implications of the of the worsening armed co conflict? Um, this internal displacement crisis combined with the COVID-19 caseload uh, are in Burkina's uh, nascent democracy. Uh, thank you very much, Senator, for that, that question. Uh, you're right to point out that there are many different forces that are uh, impacting Burkina Faso at this moment. Uh, they have uh, been hit by the coronavirus and working uh, with USAID and the Centers for Disease Control, we're helping the Burkina Faso government and, uh, and uh, others respond to that, to that crisis. Um, at the same time, the uh, terrorist attacks and the instability caused by that has continued, and the numbers um, of uh, internally displaced people continues to, um, to increase. So far, though, um, the numbers of coronavirus, at least officially reported, are, I would say from last week, um, were approximately 744 uh, cases. And so I think some of the efforts uh, have perhaps uh, yielded some success so far in containing the virus spread, but certainly the impact that it will have on the economy and the uh, increased economic activity and decreased trade will be very important to, to follow. And we'll have to work with all different players, all the different arms that we have to- And Ms. Clark, if I, can, if I can interrupt real quickly, I'm sorry. It, it, just uh, really quickly, uh, what, what are your thoughts about the likelihood that national elections will actually take place uh, in 2020 at the end of the year? Uh, thank you, Senator. Um, as far so far, the government has said that it wishes to continue with having the elected elections next year and uh, later this year, rather. And I believe that that would be very important. Those elections would be very important to ensure the solidification of the democracy that was started that, that is very still young in Burkina Faso. But you're right thank to thank you, Ms. Clark. I'm so sorry. I just have five minutes and I, oh, I, sorry, I want to, no, no worries. I would love to move on to Ms. Brown real quick. Uh, just given uh, my concerns about Uganda right now and leaders who are trying to exploit this crisis for political ends, uh, we've uh, seen uh, uh, their president's been in office for about three decades and is seeking to, to uh, seeking re-election. Uh, but in an er earlier interview, he suggested it would be madness to hold elections in 2021. And so uh, how, how do you think we should respond as a country if, if Ugandan government postpones the elections? Uh, and should evidence of state corruption and reports of abuse, torture, the unlawful killings by security forces um, draw, you know, real scrutiny uh, of our close, you know, bilateral relationship that we're having with them? And, and should the United States security forces respond uh, uh, against uh, sort of the opposition politicians and supporters um, to support them in, as they prepare for elections.
Thank you, Senator, for your question. The issue you've raised are critical for Uganda and a priority for, uh, for our engagement and for our issues going forward. Uh, I'm familiar with the press report that you referenced. Apologies, I have incredible feedback, so I will pause periodically. Um, about the date of the elections, looking at the full transcript, my understanding, and I think what a lot of people are saying is that President Museveni um, is committed to holding the elections in early 2021, but that will be determined on the on, on whether or not they're able to continue to curb the spread of COVID um, COVID-19. As I mentioned in my remarks, um, holding the election, making sure that the process is free and fair and transparent and that all the voices are heard is extremely important. Um, AID has already identified fundings to work on democracy programs. I know that the State Department's Department of Human Rights and Labor has also set aside fundings to work with Ugandans with civil society and ensuring that the process is smooth, that it's free of coercion, um, that we do our best and work together with civil society to minimize any violence against individuals. Uh, as Uganda seeks to build the economy to come out of this current pandemic, I think holding elections in a timely fashion, ensuring that there's full participation, that there's no abuse, I think is extremely important to, having, to building confidence among the public in the system. Ultimately, it's up to the Ugandan people to elect their next leader. Um, but as I said, Uganda has a very, very young population and whichever leader is elected, I believe that person has to think about the future and what's right for the country and certainly multi-party democracy where the rights of all are respected, um, where anyone who commits a human rights abuse, that that's investigated, that, um, that the legal system is used if necessary, that that's extremely important. And I will add to that, that the United States in the past, when there has been evidence of human rights abuses, we have sanctioned individuals. And that certainly is a tool that if confirmed, we will consider that um, applying that if necessary. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks for indulging me to go a little bit over. Thank you so much, Senator Booker. Now I'd like to turn to uh, Senator Young. Senator Young, are you uh, are you still on? I think Senator Gardner has stepped off. I am. I am here, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thanks so much. I, I want to thank all our participants in, in today's panel. So, Mr. Day, China's Belt and Road Initiative is, is forging a web of uh, intertwined economic, political, and security ties between Africa and China. Uh, advancing Beijing's geopolitical interests. China's policy of uh, employing Chinese labor for its infrastructure projects in Africa has resulted in somewhere around 200,000 Chinese citizens working on one belt, one road contracts uh, across the continent. Given the strategic nature of those investments, such investments in ports and in railways, oil and gas pipelines, some African governments view attacks on Chinese interests as a threat to their own national 
interests or their own national security. How are you thinking about this challenge of countering Chinese influence on the continent, sir? Thank you, Senator. Again, it's an incredibly important issue and something that we uh, spend a lot of time thinking about and are incorporating into our various approaches and strategies. Um, the again, similar to my comments before, we've we've really been seen by African partners as the health and humanitarian assistance partners, and it's incredibly important to me that we broaden that perspective. Um, we really have not been engaged um, on an economic level. Roughly around one percent of our overall trade and investment goes towards Africa. Um, so we're uh, we're launching initiatives that can help support American companies and their interests on the African continent, their commercial interests on the African continent. One thing that I think is incredibly important, though, is that all of this is rooted in democratic principles, meaning it's we're not going to be very successful in convincing American companies to go to the African continent, which, oh, by the way, has um, certainly benefits on the development side, but also has benefits to uh, American jobs and American businesses and also counters China's malign influence. But we're not going to be very successful um, if if we can't convince these American companies to go, and what they're going to be looking for is the principles of democracy, rule of law. How can they get their money in? How can they get their money out? So it's one of our key pillars of our overall strategy is to engage our African partners so that we can transform this relationship from an aid-based relationship to one that's really based on economic cooperation, diplomatic cooperation, security, et cetera. So uh, th this is uh, something that it's gonna be one of my top priorities if I'm confirmed. Is there, and, and I apologize if, uh, if if the chairman went down this line of questioning earlier, but is there anything that that we can improve upon as it relates to educating African leaders regarding the threat of debt trap diplomacy, uh, debt trap uh, development um, associated with uh, the Belt and Road Initiative? Yeah, it's it's an excellent question. I know transparency is important, and, and the IMF and other multilaterals have been helpful in, in, in providing technical assistance to some of these governments so they don't get themselves into a debt trap. So that's right. one potential solution. But are there other things we might do? Sure, sure. It's an excellent question, and, and one that we will, uh, if I'm confirmed, we'll certainly work closely with our State Department colleagues. My personal opinion is that uh, we need to sharpen our elbows a little bit and that we need to be very clearly communicating what our model is versus uh, other malign influences, the models of other malign influences. Um, and so we have engaged in some activities. We've supported the Africa Legal Support Fund, which does some kind of deal analysis. Um, and so we can look at uh, increasing those types of activities where it, where we do have knowledge of particular deals, we can actually look, do some legal analysis as, and then be able to communicate uh, some perspectives on, on whether or not this is a good deal or a bad deal or could be uh, putting you in a situation of unsustainable debt. Um, but again, I think our African partners, they want to do business with us. Um, and, and that's been something that's been clear for, for quite some time. But the consistent message that we get is that we're just not there in a commercial uh, sense. And so that's what, uh, if I'm confirmed, is going to be one of my top priorities in working with our State Department colleagues um, and Treasury and, and, and Commerce and others to ensure that we're doing everything that we can to help de-risk some of the opportunities for American businesses. Sounds like the right approach. Thanks so much. Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Thank you very much, Senator Young. Senator Shaheen.
Did you have to unmute? Mm -hmm. Can you hear me? Now we can, yes, thank you. Okay, great. Um, my first questions are for Mr. Grayson. Um, Mr. Grayson, I've had the chance to visit Estonia. I appreciate that it's in a very challenging part of the world and we have seen increasing signs of Russian aggression in the Baltic region, including a buildup of their military forces in areas bordering the Baltic states. I wonder if you think that US and NATO forces presence in the Baltic region is enough to deter Russian aggression there. Uh, Senator, thank you for that question. Uh, it's certainly a critical issue for Estonians that eastern flank and border is the tripwire for NATO. So that's uh, very important. The UK-led uh, Enhanced Forward Presence Battalion uh, is certainly comforting to the, uh, to the Estonians. And the administration of the president continue to uh, view Article 5 as ironclad and our uh, involvement is in NATO as such. And so uh, the United States and the administration uh, will fully support whatever needs that the Estonians have. Thank you. you. You talked about Estonia's innovation and how wired a country it is. It's also one of considered one of the most stable democracies in, of the former Soviet republics and has had um, a very strong reputation for forward-looking economy, for um, really sharing our values when it comes to democracy. And yet the far-right conservative People's Party of Estonia has tripled its share of seats in the parliamentary elections last year. And I wonder, I, I think that surprised a lot of people who were, including myself, who are used to Estonia's reputation. I wonder how you assess the rise of populism in Estonia and whether that threatens their forward looking towards Western Europe and our shared values. Good. Senator, thank you for uh, the question on both those topics. First, the E-Estonia. Uh, it's certainly since its emergence from uh, Soviet occupation in 1991 has been one of the great innovators and leaders uh, in digital technology. And uh, as you pointed out, you know, some of the economic factors, lowest unemployment, highest GDP, lowest debt to GDP, uh, innovation on e-residency, e-taxes, e-health, e-everything. So they've really been a star in that regard. Um, and as if I am confirmed, um, the administration um, and the State Department and, and everybody who interacts with uh, the leadership in Estonia understands that there are multiple parties and that the far right party did uh, emerge uh, with greater numbers in this past election. Uh, but it would be my job if confirmed to work with all parties to continue to uh, advance our, uh, our agenda in Estonia. Spoken like a true diplomat. Thank you very much. Um, my you. next questions are for Mr. Worcester. Jordan strongly objects to Israeli unilateral annexation of territory in the West Bank, Mr. Worcester, and we have just seen that Prime Minister Netanyahu and his main opponent in the last two or three elections has been Mr. Benny Gantz have agreed to a power sharing relationship.
that includes um, asking Parliament to vote on annexation of settlements in the West Bank. And I wonder what you think that would do to our relationship with Jordan. Prime Minister Netanyahu has said that he, he can go forward with that because he has the support of the president and the U.S. administration. Thank you, Senator. Uh, obviously a germane uh, issue. The secretary was in Jerusalem today in public remarks there. He said, there remains work yet to do. So that, uh, that captures really all of it. I know it's not a very satisfying response, but I don't wanna get ahead of him. Uh, that said, in response to your, your question, yes, Jordan has a, a stake in any peace effort. The Jordanians have raised some concerns uh, on behalf of themselves and on behalf of the Palestinians. The administration has asked the Jordanians to encourage the Palestinians to bring those concerns to the negotiating table. Um, well, thank you. And as you pointed out in your opening statement, the U.S. Jordan is a very important player in the Middle East, and our relationship with Jordan is, is very important. But we're seeing some troubling signs in terms of concern among the Jordanian population about the institutions in Jordan and um, about what's happening within the country with the increased number of refugees and what that means for the average citizen. So can you talk about how as ambassador, you can work to support Jordan as they're dealing with some of these very difficult challenges? Yes, Senator. Um, <clears throat> since its founding, Jordan has weathered uh, internal and external crises. In fact, the magnitude of the crises, particularly the external ones uh, that they have weathered has been remarkable. It's not something that any country would would want to own. I'm thinking in particular right now of the uh, ongoing uh, Syrian crisis since 2011. So as a result of these, uh, we can call them, I think, exogenous shocks, because that captures pretty accurately what they are. As a result, the kingdom's trade has been disrupted. Hundreds of thousands of refugees, perhaps more, have taken sanctuary in Jordan. And economic growth, of course, has suffered. To say that it is lackluster as a result is, is being maybe too gracious. So Jordan's gonna require continued assistance. The good news is its leaders recognize it needs to continue reforms to reinforce stability and to achieve self-reliance. These are not just in the security realm, or even for that matter, exclusive to the economic realm. They, of course, cut across political, security, economic. Um, King Abdullah has outlined some of these reforms, including freedom of expression and allowing the emergence of independent and policy-focused political parties. Well, thank you very much. And thank you to all of the nominees today for your willingness to um, be considered for these very impo important posts at this critical time. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I think I'm out of time. Thank you so much, Senator Shaheen and uh, Senator Romney. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Worcester, I'm gonna continue with the uh, line of questioning that uh, Senator Shaheen uh, began with regards to, uh, to Jordan. Uh, we have, of course, a very special relationship with Israel. Um, my guess is that all the members of this committee have been there uh, multiple times, uh, and we feel very deeply about uh, a, a nation which shares uh, our values in many respects, as, as Israel does. We also have a, a very important uh, and, uh, uh, well, a key relationship with Jordan. And uh, I would anticipate that sometimes the balancing both those relationships can be a particular challenge. Right now, as you point out, 
uh, a lot of uh, issues are faced by the uh, Jordanian government and by the king, uh, not only as they relate to Israel, but as they relate to the Syrian refugees, to their own economic challenges and, uh, and so <clears throat> forth. And I, I guess the, the question is, um, does the administration, as you understand it, and the State Department, and you personally, do you, do you feel that our relationship with Jordan is, is, uh, is also key and therefore that in, in fashioning our policy as it relates to the Middle East and particularly as it relates to Israel and the region, that, that we need to be very, very careful that we don't put uh, uh, Jordan in a position where, where they might be uh, inclined to draw away from us in some way. They obviously play a very uh, a key role they have with regards to security, with regards to intelligence sharing and so forth. Uh, and, uh, and, and the king would be under pressure given the fact that the majority of his population is Palestinian. Uh, uh, and, uh, and of course, with the peace plan that the administration put forward, uh, there was a lot of uh, resistance on the part of the uh, Jordanian-Palestinians. Jordanian and, uh, uh, and so I'm, I'm concerned about um, the, the relationship we're, uh, we're going to try and maintain with Jordan. And I'd be interested in your thoughts about how we maintain that uh, and, and don't in any way signal that, that, that we only care about uh, one uh, of the two neighbors, but we care about both in a very substantial way. Thank you, Senator. Um, as you have um, made clear in, in your remarks, this is, you recognize, and I, I think all observers of this scene do, the relationship between those two countries is interdependent. Israel can't be secure without uh, the buffer that Jordan provides, and Jordan is not going to be uh, likely very viable in terms of its own stability and economics uh, as well without a, a friendly a friendly Israel next door. So I think all of us are awake to that. I can't speak for Israel and I, I can't speak for Jordan, but having served out there, I, I know that people are eyes wide open about the realities. So Jordan and Israel, I think it's important for us to stand a baseline. They've been at peace for over 25 years since they signed an historic peace treaty in 1994. Security cooperation between the two countries remains strong, and it does so because it addresses the concerns of both countries. Politically, uh, no secret, relations have been strained in the last few years, and those tensions carry a cost with them, including uh, in missed economic opportunities, or restate that, uh, opportunities for economic cooperation that would benefit both of those countries. So the U.S. government, we remain committed to strengthening diplomatic, economic, and people-to-people -people ties between both Jordan and Israel. In terms of the, um, the treaty, uh, we continue to read the United States, we continue to respect that 94 treaty, and that recognizes the special role of the Hashemite Kingdom in the, uh, overseeing the uh, Holy Shrines in Jerusalem. And we will continue to work with the governments of Jordan and Israel to identify areas of cooperation and mutual benefit. And again, because it's not only beneficial for the two of those countries, but because of the paramount concern for uh, American officials, this is in the interest of the United States. Uh, and uh, and from your perspective, uh, is the uh, the king, um, uh, as he's been in the past, uh, in, in some respects above politics, uh, uh, or and, and and widely respected by the people in the in the country and followed. Uh, uh, with great passion and and care, or or is he under increasing pressure uh, by virtue of the uh, challenges uh, with regards to annexation and with regards to the peace plan that was proposed by the administration? 
So the king uh, is is sitting at the uh, here in in the, in the line with the with a Hashemite uh, with the Hashemite family, Hashemite royal family. Um, he's carrying on a proud tradition, uh, which bears with it enormous credibility and legitimacy, um, certainly within within the kingdom and also in the region, and of course here in the United States. And beyond beyond that, um, like any uh, head of state or head of government. Um, he's going to. He has to contend with uh, the tumult uh, that's attended to political life anywhere. Um, things come along, and you know, are you prepared for them, or you're not? Uh, in their case, uh, again, the exogenous shocks are overwhelming. Um, but um, we're confident that they've got the right team, politically and economically, to come through this, and we're going to make sure of that as the United States. Because again, the the drive, the imperative here for us is it's in our interest to see that that happens. Thank you, Mr. Worcester. Mr. Chairman, I yield my time. Thank you very much, Senator Romney. Appreciate it. Uh, Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to all of our uh, nominees. Thank you to you and your families for uh, choosing to serve and for many of you to continue to serve. Um, uh, we're going to keep the focus on you, uh, Mr. Worcester. Um, I'll continue along the same line of questioning. But before I do, let me know. Um, that uh, though you got your undergraduate degree at a second-rate school, uh, those of us who went to Williams College uh, know how Amherst uh, fails to measure up year after year. You made up for it by coming to Connecticut to get your graduate degree in New Haven. Uh, so um, uh, I would give you points for that. Um, You're a kind, Senator. <laughs> um, I I don't want to leave this conversation about the effects of annexation um, with a sense that we've underplayed uh, the level of concern uh, in Jordan. Um, you know, years ago, when there were economic protests in Amman, they would be centered on the parliament and uh, on the um, elected leaders. Now, those protests show up at the doors of the royal family. And so there is a real worry these days um, uh, from the king uh, and those that serve him that um, you know, there is a real political instability that can increase uh, as um, the uh, situation in uh, Israel continues to move uh, away from a two-state solution. So you said that there are concerns in Jordan about the annexation of the West Bank. Um, what are those concerns? What are the concerns that they have expressed to us and to the Israelis about what would happen in Jordan uh, should Israel move forward with annexation? Thank you, Senator. Uh, in terms of what the concerns are, the concerns are that uh, the Jordanians would not like to see any unilateral annexation that is a public and repeated and declared position um, of the Jordanians. Um, beyond that, uh, to return to a, a point I had mentioned with Senator Shaheen, the administration has asked the Jordanians to encourage the Palestinians to bring their concerns to the negotiating table. So yes, the Jordanians have their own sets of concerns. They've expressed those, they've expressed those of the Palestinians, and again, our, our, our plea repeated again and again is we have a plan 
that's detailed, it's implementable, it meets the core requirements of both the Israeli and Palestinian peoples. Bring your concerns to the negotiating table. So we've called on all members of the international community to consider the plan thoughtfully. The only realistic path all of us know uh, to, to getting the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict resolved is through negotiations. That is correct, uh, but that is not what this administration is proposing. They are proposing the unilateral annexation and the endorsement of it by an American administration should the Palestinians um, and the Israelis not be able to proceed to that negotiation. But let me drill down a little bit more on the concerns that they have raised. They have raised concerns that Jordanians have about annexation, as they did about the um, parameters of a possible peace plan presented by the Trump administration, because in part, they worry that that will lead to greater instability inside Jordan with a large Palestinian community. The further that we get away from a potential two-state future, uh, the, um, the greater unrest becomes amongst that population, creating more of a threat to Jordan's stability. Isn't that right? Well, Senator, obviously, there. Let, let's be clear, there have been tensions. Um, that's without going into each and every one. So clearly, this is, uh, you know, there's a lot of uphill sledding here to keep it in New England terms, if you will. But it's an incredibly important relationship. It's built on an historic peace. And we, the United States, will use our good offices, again, because of the imperative I mentioned earlier, it's in our interest. We'll use our good offices to strengthen the bonds between these peoples. We don't have any other option. Uh, I just hope that you go into this job with eyes wide open. I understand you're being very diplomatic now and you're representing an administration that has taken a very different position than prior uh, Republican and Democratic administrations. But there's going to be a fury in Jordan should this annexation go forward. It's going to make your job much more difficult. And uh, I assume and hope you know that. Um, one final question, Mr. Chairman, for Mr. Day. Um, uh, I think that you are... You are right in the way that you've approached the questions presented to you regarding uh, how we countenance China's increasing role in the continent. Um, you made one comment I just wanted you to clarify. Um, you certainly remarked that we need to have an alternative. We need to create more opportunities for Africa to invest with the United States um, and let them choose between the offers from the United States and the offers from China. You also said that you think we need to have sharper elbows, and I just didn't quite understand what you meant by that phrase. What do you mean by sharper elbows? Sure. Thank you, Senator. I think we be, need to be a bit more aggressive in how we articulate the U.S. model. Um, you know, USAID has done tremendous work on the African continent, but in some cases, we haven't been the best communicators of the work that we've done. Um, and so I, I think it'll be important as we move forward to differentiate our model versus the, the Chinese model in this particular case, but also in, with other malign influences. So we always um, have been, uh, I think, very, very diplomatic in terms of our, uh, the way in which we communicate uh, to our African partners. Um, but we're, we're getting to a place where the indebtedness that many of these African countries are seeing um, is absolutely unsustainable. And so I think that we, we need to be much more clear in how we articulate our model versus the Chinese. And in some cases, we need to be more direct. Um, I guess I was wondering whether sharper elbows meant uh, 
or forcing countries to make a choice between the United States and China. Um, it's one thing to make our argument better. It's another thing to create a policy in which we ask countries to make a choice between China and the United States. Is that what you're suggesting? No, no, it's, it's not a it's not a binary choice. Um, it's really when I say sharper elbows, I mean it's more about how we are articulating how we do business versus how the Chinese do, do business. business. Yeah, they they have multiple choices, and so what we need to do is present the U.S. model as one of many choices. And so if we can help American companies do business on the African continent, it'll be good for them, good for us. Sure, that they know what the consequences of doing business with China are. I think that, that's I think that's the right tack. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Senator Murphy. Senator Kane. Mr. Chair. Thank you, Senator. Yes, welcome. And am I up on video now, too? Listen, I want to thank the witnesses. This is a superb panel, and Mr. Chair, good work trying to manage the technology. Um, I, I do want to continue a little bit with uh, Mr. Worcester also, and then uh, have a couple of questions from Ms. Brown. So, Mr. Worcester, thank you. Uh, we put a couple of issues on the table with Jordan, because I'm also very worried about the U.S.-Jordan relationship. Um, the King often visits the Foreign Relations Committee. Um, and, and year after year, when we meet in the Foreign Relations Committee room, he looks us in the face, he talks to us about how important the relationship with the United States is, and then he says, please do, please advance the peace process. The fact that um, they have come out, the Jordanian leadership against the peace plan, and one of the reasons they've come out against it is, is that it was proposed with no meaningful involvement by the Palestinians, so I get that we're trying to tell the Palestinians to bring their issues to the table, but I think the Palestinians have a threshold question. Why was something proposed without our involvement? Um, second, the Jordanian leadership has expressed really serious concerns about potential unilateral annexation, concerns that a number of members on the committee share. But, but the, a third element is the U.S. decision unilaterally to cease contributions to uh, UNRWA in 2017. My recollection is that the U.S. was the largest contributor to UNRWA before we stopped those contributions. Isn't that accurate? Yes, Senator. And and Mr. Worcester, you were the charge in Amman, isn't that correct? Yes, sir. And when was that, that you were the charge? Um, for about 18 months um, from 2017 through 2018. How many power, how many? How many Palestinian refugees approximately live in Jordan? Um, the numbers on that differ because of how the count goes. There's mm -hmm. also sensitivity to it for the demographics, uh, uh, for domestic political reasons. But uh, I think that, Senator, we can say there are an awful lot of them. Well, were, were the, was UNRWA providing service to those Palestinian refugees in Jordan? So UNRWA was providing services, yes, in the form of education in schools. And so the U.S. Uh, uh, decision to eliminate, I think it was about $500 million a year to UNRWA, that, that definitely has an effect in, in life in Jordan, at least insofar as uh, services that are being provided to Palestinian refugees in Jordan uh, are curtailed um, and that makes things more difficult for the Jordanian government in sort of managing a reality where they have not only Palestinian refugees, but Syrian refugees. Isn't that, isn't that accurate? 
Well, Senator, it uh, remains the prerogative of the United States government to decide how to appropriate its appropriate, excuse me, how to allocate its resources. And right. we had a lot of differences with UNRWA. It wasn't unique to this administration. There'd been a lot, uh, this had gone on for decades, a lot of spats and disputes with UNRWA and the effectiveness of programming and efficiency. So uh, I can't make the pretense of telling you I'm an expert on all the details, but this had been a longstanding problem that UNRWA had and, never resolved. And, and I don't, I don't raise it to debate uh, whether the administration should do that. I wouldn't ask you that question. I have an opinion about it, but I'm just saying that with respect to the situation in Jordan, um, a, an ally that we we deeply want to maintain as an ally, if they are uh, if they're not supporters of the peace proposal on the table, if they're worried about the uh, potential unilateral annexation and the U.S.'s acceptance of it. And if the U.S. ended funding to an agency that was providing support for refugees in Jordan, that that latter fact that that is also kind of a potential challenging point uh, right now uh, with Jordan, is it not? Well, Senator, no one and uh, it's and no one knows this better than the Jordanians. Uh, no one is a better friend to Jordan than the United States is, and we can say that with integrity. And I can look you in the virtual eye and say it. Uh, and that's true by orders of magnitude. It's not simply a, uh, um, a debating distinction. It is true if you look at the record. And the record shows again and again and again, and with orders of magnitude, there's no friend that's better to the Hashemite kingdom than the United States. So you know, we, don't, we don't want these people to be beleaguered, and we don't want them left out in the dark. I mean, these are allies and strategic partners. We're going to stand by them. Uh, we're we're going to make sure that they're not left with uh, a deal that is bad for Jordan too. Let me ask Ms. Brown a question. Ms. Brown, uh, this is a very qualified panel, and I intend absent some big surprise to support everybody on it. But Ms. Brown, with respect to Uganda, an issue with Uganda that's been a a point of significant concern has been uh, the the treatment of LGBT folks in Uganda. Um, we can't tell a uh, another nation how to do their domestic politics. They're going to make their own decision about domestic policy. But but we have a uh, a set of norms that you know begin with the equality principle, and our institutions like the Supreme Court have said that that equality principle extends to LGBT people. How, in your approach to your ambassadorship in Uganda, should you be confirmed? Would you try to hold up? the banner of the U.S. equality principle, including equality to LGBT people who are beleaguered in that country. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Senator. Thank you, Senator, very much for your question, for your question, for your question. It's a really um, important issue. It's a, if confirmed, um, I would be guided by the U.S. position, which you just articulated, in which we condemn violence and discrimination um, targeting vulnerable, vulnerable populations, including LGBTI individuals. Uh, my understanding is the U.S. Embassy in Uganda has long maintained a relationship with the LGBTI community, with civil society, and we have not shied away from speaking out when these when this groups well these groups have been targeted or abused. Um, if confirmed, I would make it a point to continue to engage civil society, this community, as well as government officials um, 
which you know my predecessors have done and which the embassy is doing right now on the importance of treating everyone equally with respect ensuring that they're not abused and making sure that everyone can take part in and contribute to uganda's um, economic and social development um, right. i will say that with regard to any engagement with the government particularly if i'm sorry can you hear me or yeah i can thank you Okay, I, I would just like to finish in just saying that um, any engagement with the government, of course, we want to do that um, in, con you know, in consultation with civil society as these groups currently are vulnerable. We don't want to do anything that's going to um, create problems for them. It doesn't mean not addressing any, an issue if it comes up, but we want to make sure whether or not um, a public statement is helpful or and make sure that that's helpful or if, or if it's best at times to engage in private. And I will say that I know that some Ugandan politicians have politicians have periodically uh, raised, you know, creating laws. We um, have no indication right now that that's a serious consideration by the government. And we'll certainly monitor and make sure that these groups continue to be protected and are free to live their lives as they like. Thank you. Thank you. And Mr. Chair, I'll just say in conclusion that I've certainly heard from LGBT activists in other countries around the world that though their government may be cracking down on them, when the U.S. embassy or consulate treats them with respect, includes them, has them to events, um, that is enormously uh, powerful and appreciated uh, by LGBT activists. We can't affect the laws that other countries do, but if we treat people with respect, um, and countries value the relationship with us, that has an example. So thank you, Mr. Chair, I yield back. Uh, thank you very much, Senator Kane. Senator Coons. Uh, thank you, um, Senator Barrasso, Senator Booker for holding this virtual nominations hearing. Uh, it is wonderful to be on with you. Um, when I was the chairman of the Africa subcommittee for a number of years, uh, I enjoyed confirmation hearings such as this and um, appreciate the chance to connect with all of you uh, I have been to and visited the uh, U.S. Embassy and station in literally every one of the countries uh, you are nominated uh, to represent us at in ambassadorial roles uh, and look forward very much uh, to working with you uh, and to Mr. Day um, in your USAID role. Um, so uh, all of you, you know, should you be so fortunate as to be confirmed by the Senate, um, uh, thank you uh, to you, to your families uh, for the uh, willingness uh, you've demonstrated to step up and serve our nation. Uh, and for those of you who have long careers in the Foreign Service, for the, the ways in which that sacrifice has continued over many years, uh, I have such deep respect for the work that you do and am grateful for a chance uh, to briefly question you. It was not my intention uh, to sit here, but that is literally uh, a chihuahua that I got in Burkina Faso over my shoulder, um, which I just noticed in looking at it, Ms. Clark. Um, uh, Mr. Day, if I might, um, I just had a good phone call yesterday uh, with Acting Administrator Barca. Uh, one of his uh, priorities for USAID is reorienting uh, USAID into a post-COVID world. Um, we talked about a bill that Senator Graham and I have led and is now law called the Global Fragility Act. Um, and Global Fragility um, requires us to develop a strategy, a long-term strategy to deal with fragile areas such as the Sahel, um, in which uh, Burkina Faso certainly um, sits among others. I'd be interested if I could, Mr. Day, in your comments on 
um, what your priorities are for reorienting USAID response in Africa during and post COVID. You may have covered this while I was on another call, I apologize. Um, and to hear how you view uh, working with my office and Senator Graham's office in implementing the Global Fragility Act. And I note the chairman is yawning visibly yeah. as I was- Thank you, Senator you. <laughs> John, I have that effect well, on so many it, of my Senator, for one, thank you for the- <laughs> I was thinking of some of those uh, long Senator, flights thank you, you so and I have for had the, together for over course. Africa. Mr. Day, my apologies. Uh, that's all right. Uh, Senator, thank you so much, not only for the question, but also for your just tremendous leadership uh, on Africa issues. I know that my former boss, uh, Mark Green, uh, enjoyed immensely working with you and your team, and, and I hope to continue uh, working closely with, uh, with you and your team on, on all of these important issues. Perhaps I'll start with the Global Fragility Act. Um, we're very excited um, about this. Um, uh, USAID will take uh, one of the leadership roles um, within the interagency. Um, we're in the process now of developing the strategy, which do, is due in September, and that is on track. Um, one, of, one of the things that I, th I think is so exciting about the Global Fragility Act is that it really will push us to look at a, a multifaceted approach to um, countering violent extremism and fragility on the African continent. One, um, we have focused a lot on creating many of the, uh, the violence and, and conflict areas. Um, it, what I would call kind of symptoms, if you will, meaning the humanitarian assistance um, and a lot of our health programming, but it also was going to push us to look at some of the root causes. And that's what's absolutely critical about this issue is that you, you can't just treat the symptoms. You've got to also look at the root causes. Um, and so we, 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 when we look at many of the fragile states around Africa, and obviously we're thinking about not only the Sahel, but Somalia and South Sudan, um, and, and there are also some that very well be, may be fragile in the future. I'm deeply concerned about countries like Tanzania um, that have seen pretty significant backsliding, backsliding on the dem democracy front. Um, and so the, the Global Fragility Act will be an important kind of authorizing tool to make us look at not only those, those, uh, the symptoms um, of conflict and, and, and violence, but also looking at the root causes. But we'll have to work closely with our African government partners. And this is where kind of some of the analysis that we've done on levels of commitment. For example, in Burkina Faso and Niger, we really see significant levels of commitment. So those are areas where we can really believe we can get some, some work done. Much more complex in Mali, which is where a lot of the instability is emanating from. So one of our strategies, of course, is to do everything that we can to support Burkina Faso and Niger, to create as much of a firewall as we can from that instability creeping down into the littoral states of Togo, Benin, Ghana, and, uh, and, and Cote d'Ivoire. Um, uh, so this is something that will be, I think, incredibly important for us. In terms of COVID-19 and our approach towards that, I mentioned a little bit earlier that you know, we're, we're certainly watching closely the health impact of, of COVID-19, um, but it's a bit unclear as to how it's gonna actually unfold on the African continent. Um, and so we're watching it very, very closely, but what we do know is that the economic impact is going to be um, significant, if not devastating. Third order impact that I'm, I'm deeply concerned about that I made reference to earlier is that we also have a lot of uh, authoritarian leaders around the continent who may be looking to take advantage of this opportunity Absolutely. to yeah. consolidate uh, consolidate their power, to look at ways in which they can um, repress free media, um, uh, suppress opposition, um, look uh, crack down on civil society. 
So that's something that we're going to have to really focus on quite a bit. And it's, it's something that's a real concern of mine and I know my colleagues as well. Well, thank you. I look forward uh, to working with you on these important issues. Uh, and I agree with you about a number of the countries you mentioned and your, your characterizations. I'll also add Sudan, if I can, yep. uh, to that list where a fragile democratic transition, uh, I think is under real pressure because of the pandemic. Um, I am meeting, I think it's later today with Governor Beasley of the World Food Program. Uh, and I've met with um, several folks from leadership in Sudan, uh, the prime minister and others, uh, and am uh, trying to find an appropriate path forward for supporting uh, their stabilization. Um, I, I also think Ethiopia uh, is a country of great promise that could really be an anchor of stability in the horn. And I, I hope we'll stay in regular touch across all these different countries. Uh, if I might, Ms. Clark, I'm gonna move to you. Um, I had a, a wonderful and productive uh, delegation. I led a bipartisan delegation to Africa. I think this is almost two years ago now. Uh, and we visited both Niger and uh, Burkina Faso. Uh, I found the Burkinabe to be wonderful partners and um, to benefit from a responsive and engaged leadership at a time when they're under enormous pressure. Uh, I just thought I'd, I'd be interested in hearing um, how you see our work uh, with uh, the Burkinabe and their governance and, and leadership of society. Uh, what role you think there is for the US-French partnership in the region uh, and what you think are the major um, challenges as uh, we try to sustain um, their progress in the face of rising uh, violence and jihadist attacks. Thank you, Senator, for, for that question. And you've rightly identified many of the challenges that Burkina Faso faces today. And I think, um, should I be confirmed, I would look to use all the tools that we have at our disposal, diplomatic engagement, uh, working with civil society organizations, working with the government to promote uh, to promote human rights, to help solidify the democracy there, which I think would be very important for countering uh, violence uh, narratives, violent extremist narratives. Also working on the economic front uh, with my AID co uh, colleagues, and I just want to say that uh, it would be wonderful um, to continue to work with. Uh, Ramsey Day, and I agree with what he just outlined uh, for the for our assistance efforts, because I think that's really critical. We'll have to also work on supporting um, the law enforcement and security forces so that they can become more effective in responding to terrorism, and at the same time, underscoring the need to, um, to respect uh, human rights and to, um, and to have develop a good relationship with with the, with the people that they protect. I think right now, uh, part of the problem is that some of the territory has been uh, ceded uh, or, or has been lost and we need to work with our partners um, to help uh, strengthen and, and to return so that there is the provision of government services, et cetera. Um, and I think working, should I be confirmed, I would work carefully and closely with other partners such as the French and other that are there to uh, so that we could jointly um, and leverage our, our combined our combined thank you well, thank you I, I look forward to hearing more about uh, your work in Ouagadougou it is a, a very challenging region and um, our mission there plays a critical role um, I don't know how much patience you've got for me Mr. Chairman I have questions for everybody um, but there's uh, there's two I'd like to make sure I get to if I might 
Go, go uh, right ahead. Yes, I know we're supposed to have a roll call vote in a few moments, but yes. Uh, Ms. Brown, if I might, uh, I have visited Uganda a number of times. Uh, most recently, last August, um, your predecessor in that post is someone I've uh, followed closely and enjoyed uh, working with when she was in Liberia uh, and in Uganda. Um, president uh, Museveni became president actually uh, at the same time that I was traversing Uganda as a college student uh, in an ill-conceived uh, foray into a country in the middle of a civil war. Um, and he is still hanging on uh, and has recently said it would be wrong to hold a presidential election uh, if the uh, pandemic persists, signaling uh, a likely intention uh, to delay the elections. Uh, how, how can we work uh, with um, the Ugandan government and provide appropriate uh, pressure um, to make them respect the opposition and minority voices? Uh, as um, Senator Kane questioned you about, and I hope Ms. Brown is on, um, as Senator Kane questioned you about, uh, I too have been engaged in uh, receptions and events at the embassy, events when I have visited Uganda, I think three times over the last uh, eight to eight or so years, um, to encourage uh, minority political party members, human rights activists, journalists. I think this is a role that every American post can play around the world. Ms. Brown, if you're not here, I don't see a video. Um, I may simply uh, ask Mr. Grayson uh, if we can slide over to Estonia um, and say that, uh, I'll just briefly say, there we are, Ms. Brown, if you've got some, did you get, did you hear my question? Yes, yes, Senator, I did hear, I did hear your question, question. How are you gonna get our dear friend, Mr. Museveni, the president? And, and I'll say if confirmed, I and, Well, well, first, Senator, again, again, thank you for your question. And if confirmed, I certainly hope you make yet another trip uh, to, U to Uganda when conditions permit such travel. Um, I'd just like to kind of restate what was in um, my statement and my testimony. And also, um, Senator Booker had asked a similar question to that. And first, the issue of the date of the elections, um, looking at the transcript, President Museveni, as I understood it, said, you know, the plan is to hold elections in early 2021, but a lot of that depends on um, whether or not they've been successful in curbing the spread of COVID-19. And so far, they've been very successful in doing this. Um, the reports are that there have been only 122 cases and no deaths. And so I think that suggests that um, if this trend continues, that the conditions will exist where you can hold elections in early 2021 as scheduled. Uh, the United, you know, the U.S. Embassy and all of our resources, we've been working with civil society, with group society, with groups to really ensure that the that the playing field is level, um, that groups have an op uh, have an opportunity to participate, to share their positions, so that the electorate is well informed and can make an informed decision. Uh, these are messages that have been, the importance of this is a message that has been conveyed to President Museveni. If confirmed, it's a message that I will repeat often and as strongly as possible about the need to have an open and transparent process where the voices of Ugandan citizens can be heard and where the electorate can make their decision. As I said, ultimately, this is a decision that the Ugandan people yep. have to make. But if confirmed, I'll assure you that we will use all of the available resources to make sure that their voices are heard 
and that their will is respected at the polls. Thank you, Thank Ms. You. Brown. I, I look forward to being an instrument of your will if uh, I can be of any assistance. Uh, a previous ambassador, oh gosh, many years ago now, um, surprised me as I was about to walk into a meeting with the president and said, you need to tell him uh, that under the Leahy uh, Act, uh, we are gonna cut off funding for his, uh, I think it was his military intelligence unit because <coughs> they had failed betting. And I was happy to do so. Um, you should always uh, feel free to put visiting senators to work so we can earn our fare. Um, thank you for your willingness to take on this important post in Kampala. And Mr. Grayson, if I might briefly, I just, uh, I didn't know much about Estonia before visiting a number of years ago in a bipartisan delegation. And I was so impressed uh, with the ways in which they've innovated. Um, they've uh, in large ways recovered uh, from a devastating cyber attack by Russia in 2007 and then shown how you can make um, cybersecurity a real national resource and priority. I think they contribute in significant ways to our NATO alliance uh, and to our security. And, and I suspect you too may have already addressed this in a previous question, I apologize. Feel free to be concise if you wish. Um, how do you view Estonia's contributions to our NATO alliance? Well, Senator, thanks for the question, and, and you've seen it firsthand, so you know how important and how impressive it is. Uh, but the NATO Cyber Center of Excellence is the first start, and the activities between UCOM and the U.S. Cyber Command and all the uh, joint uh, activities and missions between our country and Estonia uh, are quite prolific. And uh, even most recently with COVID-19, they've uh, launched multiple uh, initiatives and a global hackathon to incentivize Estonians, which they don't need much incentive to do, but to really try to find uh, solutions, uh, e-solutions to this global pandemic that's facing the world. So I think, um, and I hope if confirmed, I can even further uh, turbocharge this relationship that we have with them on uh, cyber issues, e-issues, um, everything possible that uh, e-Estonia has become so uh, famous for. And thank you, Mr. Grayson. And I, um, I hope you'll stay in touch and uh, feel free to update me on their developments. I, I really found it an inspiring country. Uh, I had a, we, a, a bipartisan delegation, we had a meeting with the head of the Estonian Armed Forces and a long briefing that um, left a, an enduring impression on me of, of the role that they are um, taking on and playing in NATO. Henry, uh, last but far from least, if I might, uh, please give my best to Laura. It is wonderful to see a college classmate ascend to the position of ambassador. Um, and you are taking on in Amman uh, a critical strategic post, uh, one where um, our relationship with the kingdom, as you said in your uh, opening statement, um, is critical both in terms of their values, the way in which uh, the Hashemite kingdom continues to welcome and support refugees, the ways in which uh, the king, uh, the keeper of the holy sites of Jerusalem and a real leader uh, in the Muslim world um, continues to be an absolutely critical partner for us. So um, I, I'd be interested, you did speak to um, Jordan's economic stability, um, uh, not to be too pointed about it. Uh, I'm concerned um, that there is a budget request that would significantly reduce aid to Jordan um, what sort of an impact do you think there would be on Jordan's stability and on the U.S.-Jordan relationship if we were to uh, sharply reduce U.S. support for Jordan? 
So sharply, Senator sharply reduced support uh, wouldn't uh, wouldn't be celebrated, of course, uh, in Amman, but the for understandable reasons. But uh, if you are referring to the president's budget request for FY21, is is that what you're pointing to? I am. The FY21 okay. budget reduces aid to Jordan by 250 million, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, so Senator, on on that aspect. Um, Look, Jordan's stability is premised on its economic stability, and that yep. the stability of that of the Hashemite Kingdom is a U.S. priority. The budget, or this FY21 budget, it seeks 475 million in direct support, sometimes referred to as budget support. That's consistent with our FY20 request. So the president's FY21 request strikes a balance between supporting, on the one hand, Jordan's economic development. And then ensuring, on the other hand, a modern interoperable military that's capable of continued support to U.S. forces and to coalition forces. So within the parameters of the uh, memorandum of understanding uh, that the parameters are outlined there, we routinely assess the assistance mix to ensure that the request that we have is aligned with what we anticipate the future needs are going to be. A senator, if confirmed, I pledge to work with you and the rest of the members to ensure we have the mix right. How, how sustainable um, is the number of refugees that Jordan has taken in? Um, you know, on, on a per capita basis, given the very limited natural resources they have, given the dramatic number of refugees who've been in Jordan for decades, uh, I've really been struck at their um, ability to sustain and endure, as have several other countries in the region, admittedly. but. Um, Jordan is an exceptional ally, I think, and their uh, ability and willingness to really sustain a significant Syrian population now over many years uh, has impressed me. How sustainable do you think it is, both economically and politically? Uh, and given that my next meeting is with the head of the World Food Program, um, how do you see um, our support for refugees within Jordan? Well, Senator, the, um, the, the sustainability question, aspect of the question is dependent directly upon the willingness of uh, countries to be supportive. So in, our, in the case of the United States, that's not really a question. This is a priority for us. It's an anchor for us in the Middle East. It's a strategic partner. And we also need the international community to be on board with us to share this. Um, burden uh, has a pejorative term that I don't mean, but can't think of something more elegant at the moment, but in short- Blessed opportunity. Blessed opportunity, thank you, Senator. The United States has provided about one and a half billion in humanitarian aid to the organizations that are assisting the Syrian refugees in Jordan. And that includes the Jordanian host communities because uh, you may recall, Senator, I know you visited, uh, you visited Jordan before, but over 80% of the Syrian refugee population are not in refugee camps. They are in Jordanian local communities. So we're, we're very awake to that and we tailored that assistance so that it hits those communities as well. And our assistance supports not just the uh, Syrian refugees, but the non-Syrian refugee populations uh, in Jordan from over 50 different countries. So we're gonna continue to work with the international community to support Jordan in giving refugees a dignified life, access to services and opportunities. Again, the imperative here, we always come back to this, we anchor in this, it is in the U.S. interest. Um, thank you. Um, I have visited uh, the BDBD refugee camp in Uganda uh, twice, um, last August and two years before that. One of the fastest growing 
uh, open uh, refugee camps in the world where refugees are given an opportunity uh, to own land, to farm, to fully integrate into Ugandan society. One of the most memorable refugee camp visits I'll ever make uh, was with uh, Senator McCain uh, and a bipartisan delegation um, to Zatria in um, uh, Jordan, uh, where uh, it, it was in the early days of the Syrian civil war and just heartbreaking. Um, so um, to everyone on the call who's got anything to do with our uh, refugee support, as Mr. Day certainly will, and as uh, Ms. Clark also will, please just know that's an area of passion uh, and interest for me. Uh, and please know how much I appreciate the work of our foreign service uh, and development career professionals in remote and difficult and dangerous places. Uh, many of you are going to be going to places that are challenging. Um, Estonia is, you know, um, might be challenging should the Russians make a strategic decision, uh, but it, it is literally one of the loveliest countries I've ever been to, uh, absent the Russian threat. Um, let me just say in closing my apologies that I'm so grateful to all of you um, for your years of dedicated service to our nation um, and to your families, and I appreciate the chance to question you. Thank you for your patience, Mr. Chairman. Um, I look forward to supporting all of today's nominees. Well, thank you so very much, Senator Coons. And I, uh, Senator Booker, I, would you have any closing comments before I wrap it up? They have called the vote. Why don't we wrap up? Okay, well, thank you. I want to thank all of you for your testimony, uh, for your patience in navigating the new process, and willingness to serve our nation. Um, it is my hope that each of you will be dedicated to ensuring the safety of Americans, to advancing U.S. interests all across the world. And members of this committee, we've had 10 members on board during the hearing today. Members of the committee are going to have until 5 p.m. on Friday, May 14th, sorry, uh, May 15th, to submit questions for the record. Uh, we ask the nominees to respond promptly in writing to the committee in order for your nomination to be considered in a timely manner. Thank you again. Congratulations to each and every one of you. The hearing is adjourned.